Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Trevor Brown, Deputy Chief Information Security Officer at Yale New Haven Health. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Trevor, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here, Anthony. All right. Very good. Let's uh, start in. I'll ask you about um, your, tell me a little bit about the organization and your role there. Mm -hmm. Sure. So currently with Yale New Haven Health, uh, we are about uh, right, right around 30,000 employees, primarily focused in uh, Connecticut as uh, Connecticut's largest healthcare system. Uh, we have five main hospitals and probably around three, 350 offsite locations. Uh, we're also expanded into Rhode Island and New York. And, uh, you know, always, uh, you know, uh, like companies our size in, in the healthcare space, looking at uh, pick up acquisitions where we can. In terms of the security group, uh, we have about uh, 40, 45 people in security, uh, primarily focused on uh, risk and audit, uh, identity access management, cybersecurity, and uh, security architecture. All right. Very good. I want to start with sort of an open-ended question, just see what's on your mind. Uh, what are you thinking about these days? Any big trends you're looking at, big projects you're working on? So what's sort of top of mind for you? Yeah, so there, there's a few tracks. I mean, one on the the actual tool side. I mean, we we look to use best of breed tools, uh, so we we do shift from time to time. And there's there's usually uh, you know a project ongoing in that space. Uh, one initiative that I've really been pushing this year is uh, end user training. So uh, a lot of organizations, you know, they they talk about end user training, but we're really pushing it to the the point of going to locations, uh, meeting with um, department staff before their shift starts, providing that user training on the spot, and also pushing out uh, quarterly phishing and really making sure that those users that are failing are provided with the proper training. So that's something that we really want to push uh, just because of the prevalence of ransomware, any type of malware coming in through email is so prevalent. Uh, that you know your your weakest link is is your your actual user base. So you know just clicking a link can be uh, you know could be catastrophic. I mean hopefully it's not. We have some pretty good tools in place and people, but um, really pushing that training out. Okay, very good. Let's talk a little bit more about the training. Um, is this a mandatory type thing? So you know people come in and usually there's training upon starting. Yeah, and that's fairly easy to to arrange. Um, and then there's the idea of after they've been on the job a while, is there periodic training or are there specific things you want them trained up on? Is it mandatory? Um, and then, you know, we can get into the idea of, you know, there's supposedly quite a bit of turnover out there and there should be a good, uh, good working relationship between HR and security. So, you know, when people leave, you know, mm -hmm. around identity management, yeah. right? Adding mm -hmm. permissions and also removing permissions and then making sure that um, things are revoked when they leave. But let's talk, let's start with that training and tell me a little bit more about that, what you want to cover and then whether it's mandatory, periodic or whatnot. Mm -hmm. So the one annual training, we have an information security and compliance training that is mandatory. Uh, we just did a full re revamp of the program uh, wanted to, it hadn't been updated for over uh, almost four years now. So we just did that and then we rolled that out this year. Uh, and then we have the quarterly phishing training as well. So if you fail that, then you're brought into our learning management system for required training. So it's kind of a, that two pronged attack. Uh, 
around identity and access management. So we're very good at uh, obviously onboarding, uh, pretty good at terminations. The, the area that we, I won't say we struggle, but I think like most organizations, definitely all the organized, big organizations I've been at, it's around the uh, the transfers that sometimes, you know, you transfer, something happens along the way that they maintain their old permissions, and then you have that type of privileged access internally. Uh, you know, we, we have done a lot of work in that space, but that's that's always something that that we're uh, you know we're looking to improve on. And that's because of the size of the work staff and the amount of changes that happen, right? I mean, there's changes all the time, especially in healthcare. People are moving around, sometimes temporarily, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, to handle uh, you know certain need in certain area, and then there has to be that communication, right? with security. So Exactly. So tell me a little bit more about that. That's why it's hard to get your arms around it, right? Yeah, we have we have a pretty good process. A lot is dependent on that HR, uh, you know, it's it's an automated feed that yes, this is the termination date, but sometimes those don't go in or sometimes uh in in most health systems, they have a lot of non-employee users as well in their EMR systems. So you could be an outside provider and an employee of Yale New Haven, you leave as Yale New Haven, but you still need EMR access. Uh, and then there's a lot of very nuanced type of scenarios where you know they need access for this, but not that. And it's kind of, then you get into a manual type of uh, review by one of the analysts on the team. And the goal there is to make the, the manual stuff as, as small a part as possible because that could just be endless, right? Dealing exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we, we operate on the premise of minimum necessary. So minimum access to the data, minimum privileges required to, to perform your job. We really push that minimum necessary. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the quarterly phishing training. Um, any thoughts on that or things you want to share about sort of doing that well and making it effective? And, um, you know, we've all heard sort of comical things about, you know, you don't want to tell the employees everyone got a bonus. Because then they get pissed off when they find out it's not true. <laughs> so, so your thoughts around phishing? Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting. So when the early phishing emails came out, I mean, they're very recognizable. I mean, bad spelling and just the sentences didn't make sense. Now the phishing is so realistic that you get them and you're like, well, I am accept. I, I'm expecting an, an Amazon package today. Is this is this it? Like, so. Uh, feedback has been mostly positive. Uh, some users are like, you know, this isn't appropriate or, you know, we, you know, I, I usually, you know, I don't, I don't fail, but then, you know, we'll check and they're, you know, one of those types of repeat offenders it might be some pushback on actually doing that training. But, um, you know, we, we do, uh, portray that, you know, it is very important for the organization. Uh, it is, you know, required from all employees and it's, it's something that, you know, we try to, push out and show the benefits of that training uh, so that, you know, obviously, you know, the security posture is enhanced as a whole across that 30,000 employee base. So for most of the, the security folks I've spoken to in healthcare, there's a, there's a very big reluctance to um, look at anyone who makes an error as anything other than a victim. Um, mm. So there's not a huge amount of desire for punitive action when people make mistakes repeat mistakes i don't know what are your thoughts around that does that does that ever end that sort of benevolent approach does that ever have to 
get stricter to where there are some serious consequences because as you talked about the risk, I mean, yes. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk a little bit more about the ways you mitigate the risk of a bad click, but it's nonetheless a risk. So your thoughts around that sort of, we know there's a carrot. Is there ever a stick in these things? So there is to some extent. I mean, it, it depends. I mean, we have HR policies and information security policies in place that if you were to do something, Beyond, uh, you know, what we would deem as inappropriate. I mean, there's there's an offboarding process and uh, a number of steps that would be involved. Uh, in terms of phishing, what we're doing is, uh, you know, we're building that out where the training sent to the the employee, and then if there's a period of time that goes by, then their their manager is notified as well to have a discussion with them. So we found that that's quite helpful. Uh, when you're, I mean, sometimes it's it's the manager and the employee have both failed, right? So it's, it's going to to one level above, but. Uh, usually when you get something from, from your manager to say, Hey, you know, this, you know, and we have a discussion with them. I mean, these are a small group that we're actually reaching out to at that point and, um, you know, having that discussion and showing them the benefits. So when you have that discussion with your manager, you, usually you're going to do the training and it's, it's something, you know, if your manager is speaking to you, that's kind of reinforced of, you know, the, the, the benefit from that. Crafting these emails, these these phishing campaigns, is this something you use outside help for? Is this something you try and design yourself? I'm thinking that it's probably a lot more um, difficult to do this properly um, as you get down to actually writing. I think in general, yeah, mm-hmm. we could we could craft a phishing email, but when you come down to writing it, you want it to be not too easy, not too hard. Because I suppose, I mean, you it could be so yeah. sort of undetectable that no. Nobody could be expected to to recognize right, it. But right. What are your thoughts? I mean, how do you do that? How do you craft those? Yeah, a lot of them. So we're saying, I mean, we do use a third party tool that has you know various templates that you can choose from. I mean, you can choose from ones. Uh, we did a holiday type phishing exercise where you know they were like you know your package is being delivered type. Uh, they also come. Uh, we have an external banner, so if emails are coming in, I mean. You, you are expected to know that, hey, is this external? Okay, that's kind of like your first. And I think the vast majority of companies have that in their, their email built in. That's kind of the first step of, you know, of pause, I would say, from an employee perspective. And um, But yeah, the, the, the templates themselves, uh, the tool we use is, is pretty good. There's a lot of standardized phishing type tools out there. I think they all offer pretty much the similar um, package where you can choose phishing templates and then you can choose types of escalation emails for those that fail. Um, we build those in and then that, I would say that last 1%, then we go to a manual type process where we're, we're working with them and making sure that they understand the benefit of the training. Right. So that's one one angle of creating the culture of security is sort of mm-hmm. the testing. How do you get people to care? Uh, what's the messaging there that, that here's why you should care? I mean, do you talk about outages at other health systems and how they've been down for weeks or months and how that impacts patient care? How mm-hmm. do you get them to care uh, and you know to take an extra minute because they understand the severity of what could happen? Yeah, so we do have those types of monthly, quarterly email blasts that go out, newsletters. Uh, also, our approach when we're we're discussing information security is uh, we deal with a lot of physicians, nursing, a lot of patient-centered individuals, 
And we really portray it and, and put it in a risk perspective because th- those individuals, they're dealing with risk every day with their patients. You know, should, should that patient have surgery? Should they not? There's risk to each of them. So we portray that from an information security perspective. And I think once you have those, those risk discussions, it really starts to click with the end users and they, they do understand where you're coming from. Very good. Um, so you mentioned uh, that culture of security. Uh, what might be sort of number two that's on your mind, either a trend or something you're working on, something you're looking at, trying to follow? I, I would say the number two thing is uh, really uh, making sure that we're sound in the identity access management space, uh, making sure that those users who no longer need access are terminated uh, timely. Uh, making sure that any types of transfers that their access is is provisioned correctly, uh, you know, and it's really streamlining those processes. So that's a big initiative that we have is, is around the user access space. Uh, we also have uh, a number of activities uh, ongoing to support uh, a lot of the, the patient facing type uh, areas. Uh, so we're we're embedding and working with the teams in, in those, and also from the employee experience uh, viewpoint, making sure that you know, whatever actions we're taking, uh, that security is built into that. So there's a lot of working sessions with the various projects going on and making sure that that right security person is involved. And how do you, how do you manage to get there? That's, that's obviously a huge thing. We talk about it a lot around third-party risk. Uh, if a department or someone is bringing in a new application that those have to be checked by security, Mm -hmm. they have to be looked at. And we don't want to be brought in the night before you're supposed to sign the contract, right? So that's all around governance. That's all around communicating the role of security, coming up with processes that mm-hmm. people accept and understand and are willing to engage in. You know, it's it's not the military, right? So we want people to want to come to security. Here's why you want to come to security. Sure. And here's how you do it. Here's our process. Um, and hopefully you're catching fewer and fewer things as they pop up on the network. Nobody came to you. Nobody told, what's this? Oh, now we have to go out. Oh yeah. We just, it's a cloud app and Hmm. I I use my credit card. Right. So um, (laughs) how do you, how do you change the dynamic? How do you get that done to where security is brought in at in a timely manner for Mm -hmm. these things? Yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. So, uh, you know, I've been here over 10 years and, when, you know, in that time frame, I mean, people didn't want security involved. They kind of wanted to just get their projects through because they, they knew there was there, there could be some, you know, time holdups or certain type of requirements, extra requirements to, to delivering the, the end product. Uh, it, over that period of time, it's completely flipped where now no one wants to do anything without ensuring that it's gone by security for that check. Uh, and we've we've done a lot of work with our, our project management teams, and we have a really good intake process to make sure that projects are, are going in through that vetting channel and that the right technology groups, including security, is involved. Uh, you know, that being said, are there ones that slip through? There, there always is, right? I mean, but it, but I would say that that number now is is very very limited. Uh, uh, the number of kind of eleventh hour, hey, we're we're putting this in tomorrow. Any issues with security? I mean, that's that's a rarity now, and um, I, th- I think that you know that's something that we built over time. And, and like any organization, it takes time for that type of culture to to switch and change, where they see security as an asset as opposed to a hindrance. Uh, so we we've really put a lot of work into that. And I, I think that you know it's really shown through the organization. What is the usual method of 
finding something that someone has sort of purchased or turned on without the proper vetting. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you think of any ways that you know it pops up on your radar? How does that happen? Yeah, a lot of them, and they come in through other employees, either in the technology group or other departments. Uh, they might be detected through a number of our scanning tools that we have. Uh, that's those are really the the two main methods. Uh, I, I think it's really important to have those key contacts outside of the technology group, uh, people that are aware in finance, compliance, uh, other areas where a lot of times they'll come to us and say, "Hey, did you know about that third party tool, or did you know about that new do- donation site that they're spinning up?" And they they come in, and then we get involved. So uh, having those, I would almost say, like uh, you know, allies from a security standpoint that are embedded through the organization that we work closely with, closely with, really helps us. Yeah, and and I'm again from what I hear, that's that's a rather friendly. Uh, hey, we saw you turn this on. We're right. here from security, right? It's not a mm-hmm. sort of uh, punitive. Uh, how dare you? It's a you know, we'd like to explain to you how you how, how to protect the organization a little better. Is that the dynamic? Yeah, it, it is for the most part. Uh, I think in healthcare in general, it's it's more cordial and more uh, supporting each other. Uh, you know, in some other industries, but I, I think when once you do explain the benefits, then you know, I would say the, the vast majority of people are on your side, and they want to make sure that whatever product they're rolling out is properly secure, both from a, a patient and employee perspective, but, you know, the organization as a whole. So you mentioned that they're, they're, they're much more likely now to come to security. I think they understand, uh, they want that stamp for their own benefit that, that it's been yes. stamped, yes. right? They don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to be caught, uh, not having gotten it stamped. Uh, but they don't, you know, as you mentioned in the old days, they were worried security would slow them down. Um, so you want that to happen as little as possible. You mm-hmm. want to have an efficient process of responding to a request for vetting. So, hey, we want this app here, security, uh, whatever. Do what you either stamp it or yeah. don't stamp it or let us know what he's doing. But it, it can't fall into a black hole right. where we don't hear right. from security for a month and then nobody remembers what we sent over. Nobody can find it. Obviously, there's I'm exaggerating, but what do you want to do what kind of service do you want to offer in that scenario yeah to, to your so internal we, person go ahead sure sure we we have a pretty well-defined security design review process so we we would work with uh, we have a number of uh, uh, individuals internally that do reviews and also we we leverage uh, an external company for some of the uh, the more uh, te- technical I, I would say or technical specific reviews uh, where we need to leverage outside expertise. Uh, and then built into that, you know, we have questionnaires, we meet with, if there's a vendor involved, we'll meet with them, meet with the internal types of sponsors. And then we produce our end product as a risk assessment. And uh, we have, uh, uh, if there's risks that are identified, uh, we list those as, you know, need to be addressed, uh, implemented prior to uh, the project uh, going live or they can be remediated after. And we have a review process, uh, an annual review process where we go and we validate and we check and, and follow up on those risk issues. And I assume you're seeing the gamut from the vendors uh, in terms of some are responding quickly with exactly what you asked for and maybe yeah. some you don't hear back from. And then you may have to go back to your internal uh, user who wants this app and say, either we're, we're not getting the information we need or they're not responding back to us in a timely mm-hmm. manner. So 
hey, maybe you want to reach out to them because they're not getting back to right. us. I don't know if that dynamic right. happens. We we have done that. I mean, we will escalate to our sponsors, and there has been you know instances where you know the vendor is just being so non-responsive that we, as an organization, to you know decide not to use them and to go with someone else. Or if they've came back with you know their security posture is just so low that you know our our strong recommendation is not to use them. Obviously, you know that that comes into you know a lot of you know types of escalations and you know dynamics around that into the you know the the need or necessity of that vendor. But um, I mean, we we do have I think we're we're respected enough that you know if we have a strong opinion, then uh, that business clinical area will decide to go with another vendor. Right. And you use the term sponsor for the internal person that's requesting this app or championing mm-hmm. this app. And I would imagine that um, transparency can go a long way here in convincing that sponsor or helping them understand why, you know, we don't recommend you go forward with this. Here's what happened. Here's where they're falling short. They may not understand yeah. super technical <laughs> level, but still you want to come. You don't want to just say no. Right. Yeah. You want to say, sure, here's what's going on. And hopefully they'll say, well, uh, now I understand. So we're going to have to look at someone else. So you bring them on board with, with yeah. your thinking yeah. rather than just dribble, delivering a no <clears throat> from security. Yeah. And it's interesting. The, the vendors that we do say no to, usually those business clinical areas have had issues with them as well. So <laughs> I find it kind of goes hand in hand. If you're a bad vendor on the security side, you're usually a bad vendor from like a, a delivery standpoint, uh, responsiveness. Uh, it just kind of runs the gamut like that. Right, right. All right, very good. Let's talk a little bit about medical device security. I think um, if if my research served me correctly, that, that was on your LinkedIn profile, that this is an area you have some experience uh, obviously, a huge area. There's some regulatory stuff going on where they're trying to make the vendors behave a little better. I mean, it's the craziest area because mm-hmm. there's there's a tiny number of vendors that produce some of these pumps and these different things that right. everybody needs. Right. So the buyer, <laughs> in this case, even the largest health system, could have absolutely no sway, no power here. <laughs> They're not listening to you and making changes. They're doing their thing, which is why almost has to be at a a level of government influencing this. But what are your thoughts around the current state of medical device security? Uh, What you see as far as going on from policy point of view, what you like and any advice you have for your colleagues here? This is an area people struggle with. You know, it's almost like the, the identity and access management with permissions moving all over. Well, with this, you have devices moving all over. Yeah, uh, and sometimes you can't even find them. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, so one thing we we did do is we we weren't uh, several years ago we weren't good with tracking our medical devices or knowing what we have, and we put some pretty good scanning tools on the network that you know, would detect these types of devices. So we did build out a really good inventory base and asset inventory on the, those. Uh, in terms of the security governance type, I, I think vendors are really seeing that. You, know, you better be pretty tight around this area because there is a lot of influence and in, in some policy creation coming from the government side. Uh, and I, I think most of the large vendors are pretty good in this space. Some of the smaller vendors, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see things where they're still running, you know, very you know, old operating systems or they're, they're embedded. So you can't even do patching on them. Uh, we try to work with the vendor 
you know, to, to upgrade those or to either isolate them. Uh, you know, and it's all, it's all a risk decision too. Right. And in terms of, you know, if, if you have uh, a medical device, you know, in a locked room where only two people ever access physically and, and it's, um, you know, it's, it doesn't hold a lot of data, then it's, it's probably something that we, we may not address, Mm -hmm. but if it's something that is, you know, much higher risk, I mean, we'll, we'll work with the vendor if the, and then again, you know, if, if they don't want to, if they don't see that as, as a, a benefit, I mean, we can always look for other, other types of vendors. I mean, there are some very specialized, uh, but usually you do have a close competitor as well. So I think that, you know, from a vendor standpoint, keeping up with good security hygiene is, is a selling practice to, to customers. It's certainly become more and more of one. Yes. Um, you mentioned a risk-based decision. Now, as we know that the folks in it security are not making those decisions, they are ascertaining and discerning and figuring out the risk and then they have to figure out how to communicate that risk in a non-technical way to a business person, an operations person who's usually going to be the decision maker, correct? I mean, you are there to communicate risk to someone who's going to decide about accepting or not accepting that risk. Is that correct? And what's your best advice for IT security folks in make sure, making sure they are translating that in a way business folks, even board people, can absorb it and make the proper mm-hmm. and be in a, be in a position to make a good decision because you've done a good job translating it. Yeah. So, so I, I think it really depends on what the risk is. I mean, we, we do have influence if there's something that's such a, a, a large risk to the organization as a whole. I mean, we would, we would have that authority to, to say no or, or heavily influence that decision as a, as a consensus to say no uh, when it gets to some of the smaller risks uh, when we're going through that uh, that clo- those closeout meetings and through the risks, we'll have those individual decisions with the sponsors, with the project teams. Uh, and sometimes we're fine with risks being accepted, and we have a good risk tracking tool that you know they would be accepted risks. We would we would follow up with them either biannual or annually to make sure that they still are an accepted risk. Whether we need to mitigate, uh, whether it's even in the organization, it's um, you know. Uh, Maybe the application that they're using is no longer used, so you know that risk has gone away. Um, but I do think it's it's really important to write them in a a business clinical type of uh, uh, presentation. Whereas I try to really work with the team to keep a lot of that technical type of uh, wording limited, so that your point is coming across, but it's not it's it is understood by by the, the sponsors in the business areas. And do you think that's sort of uh, you could? That's a maturation process as an IT security professional. For example, uh, you're working with someone junior, perhaps mentoring them. That might be a typical yeah. mistake. Is there's there's this is way too technical for the people we're going to go talk to in an hour, something like that. It it definitely is. It's I mean, a skill set, and it's something that you know, you mentor and you work with people on. Uh, yeah, I've you know. I've seen some risk assessments that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I read and I'm like, this, you know, this is so technical that no one's going to understand this outside of that small area that, you know, that, that you reviewed. So we we do mentor the younger staff. We work with junior employees, uh, security analysts to to make sure that they're presenting in a certain way that a large audience can understand. And that's the same when we write policies. Uh, 
how I write an information security policy and we work with our policy committee is that you're writing this policy uh, with, with the, uh, the thought that the person reading it has never read it before, has no knowledge of security, uh, but it's understandable for them what they can and cannot do. So it's the same with our, our risks, how we try to write those. Very good. So your uh, your CISO, uh, Glenn Stanton, um, uh, did an interview and he talked about uh, the experience gap. I guess some of the folks that are brought in, junior folks come in maybe out of college, um, they, they obviously, they have to get up to speed, so to speak. And one of the things he mentioned was, I guess they, they have a hard time judging what's what's important, what's not important, right? What's a real risk, what's an issue versus what not. Um, these individuals can sometimes lack the experience needed to be able to judge the appropriate level of controls for the appropriate level of risk and usability. So I am asking you to sort of react to someone else's statement, but it's your CISO. And it's kind of an interesting concept that that again is part of the learning curve. And mm -hmm. I assume the, 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 how that manifests itself would be overreacting to risks that maybe are not a problem, but, but I guess it could go the other way where they're underreacting to something that's important, yeah. but your thoughts around that and always with an eye to giving advice to, to your colleagues who are uh, bringing on these same folks to their teams. Yeah, no, that, that's a really good topic area. And one thing I, we really try to emphasize is that to an individual employee, you're part of a wider team you, you have. So don't think that you need to be making these decisions on your own, uh, especially when you're writing a risk assessment, you're going to finalize it. Always run this by another teammate, your manager, a person, another individual in the security area that, that has more experience. So I, I think having that type of almost like a learning type of experience as you're writing these really helps. Uh, but you're right. I mean, sometimes people will come in and they'll say, hey, this is a huge risk. And I, I think what we try to do is, is emphasize, you know, look at it from a, an, an organizational impact, not mm -hmm. just that small area that you're, you're, you're identifying it in is a really huge risk. And sometimes it'll be like, oh, actually it's a very low risk, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of that mindset. And you can go the opposite way too. It's it's rarer where, you know, someone would come in and think it's a, it's a really low risk, but it's actually really high, but it could be when you're looking at it from an employee uh, or a, sorry, an organizational uh, perspective. I think for an example, someone wanted to connect from, uh, they wanted to work remote from a different country, you know, outside the United States. Uh, to connect to this application, and and we said no, and they thought it was a very small risk. But from an organizational standpoint, we explained because of these reasons, it's it's a very huge risk. So they were understanding that. Yeah, and I, I recall a, a conversation I had with another CISO. Um, it's important to understand context. So you, let's say you have an application that's being requested, a clinical application, and perhaps this is a really, really specialized application that's very unique mm -hmm. and super high value and the clinical folks saying this is going to save lives, that creates a different risk context. You may be willing to accept more risk for something that these folks are saying, let's assume it's true, are saying is this is super important to patient care. So, right? Because so it's all in context. You have to understand mm -hmm. what's going on yeah. with the application, which may be is difficult for an IT security person, which is why you have to really understand operations. You can't yeah. just be in a little silo. You have to understand what people are doing with this stuff. And the goal of the organization is to deliver patient care. Yeah. So your thoughts there? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And one of the things that we've really tried to do uh, from our staffing perspective is to bring in really good people that 
are in other roles in the organization and we we see them we you know we work well with them we see that they have a good risk mindset a security interest and then we bring them in and then they bring in that clinical business knowledge into the group uh, i find that's really beneficial because if you're working at a healthcare system and all of your information security hires are from the outside and they've only worked in information security you're going to miss a lot and a lot of that operational understanding a lot of that clinical understanding so We've done a nice job. I say it's 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 almost like a 50-50 where half of our staff have been in other areas and we bring them in. And, you know, as long as, you know, obviously we're knowing that they're competent individuals and, you know, they can learn the security side, but they bring in a wealth of knowledge. And then for some of the specialized security areas, we'll, we'll bring in, you know, specific individuals, external hires. But I do really like the, those internal hires coming in from, from other business and clinical areas. Yeah. If you're going to have to talk to a uh, well-respected and experienced physician about something they're not doing properly from a security point of view, you have to know how to have that conversation, Yeah, right? You're not going to send your junior person out of the basement to go yell right. at them. Yeah. And we, yeah. And we have, we have physicians that work in yeah. the technology group. So if it's going to involve, you know, it depends who it is, another right. physician, we'll bring them into the conversation and, and have that. So make it more collegial. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes, that's awesome. All right, Glenn, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Trevor, I had Glenn on my mind. Um, I think that's just about all we had time for. Any final thought based on your experience, your career, best piece of advice for someone in your position at another health system, something that you felt ha- you feel has contributed to your success? Yeah, I think just keeping in touch with people outside of your organization, uh, being a member of, of different security groups, uh, going to conferences. Whenever I go to a conference, I, I always like, I, I either talk to someone or I, you know, see a, some type of presentation of things that I, I never thought of. And uh, there's a lot, there's so much new coming at any individual, you're not going to know everything. So really finding those, those great people that can work on your team that you can delegate to, and you have full confidence that, you know, they're the expertise in this area you're comfortable with delegating to them. I think it's very important for any anyone in a deputy CISO, CISO position. You can't do it all. You, you need those really good people to work with on your team. So I think really stressing that, I mean, that that, that could even be the, the number one thing that, that will benefit you uh, for creating success in your organization is, is having great people to work with. Great advice, Trevor. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you.